Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to award-winning Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. I am your host, Rick Loiza, and this is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. We are bringing old-school basketball to a new-school audience. And today, we bring you the story of the founding of an NBA team. Now, there is a question that I used to have, and maybe you have also asked this same question. The question is this, what is involved in starting an NBA team from scratch? And what I mean is, what are the actual logistics and business moves involved in starting a brand new team in the NBA? So put yourself into the shoes of a brand new NBA owner. You have just received approval to start a new team. You are excited. You want to celebrate. But the real important question is, what now? That is the problem that needs to be solved and solved quickly. For this episode, I decided to use the story of the founding of the Chicago Bulls. A lot of what happens in this story is specific to the city of Chicago and the Bulls as a team. However, what the Bulls did is practically what every other team has to do to get ready to play their first game. You see, in addition to loving this amazing game, I am also equally interested in the business side of the sports industry, especially the business side as it affects what happens on the field or on the court. So let us get into it. The Bulls began playing its games in the fall of 1966, but the announcement for a brand new team in the city of Chicago was announced a year earlier in 1965. And this is for good reason. It takes around a year or more to get ready to play your first game. I am old enough to have seen the NBA add seven new teams. When I started watching the NBA, the league only had 23 teams, with the Dallas Mavericks being the youngest of them all. I have seen the addition of the Charlotte Hornets, the Miami Heat, the Minnesota Timberwolves, the Orlando Magic, the Vancouver Grizzlies, the Toronto Raptors, and the Charlotte Bobcats. The Hornets eventually became the New Orleans Pelicans, and then the Bobcats became the new version of the Hornets. I know, it's very confusing. In every one of those cases, a lot of work had to be done before they could play their first games. And the same was true of the Chicago Bulls. The primary owner way back in the beginning was a Chicago businessman by the name of Dick Klein. He owned a company that did business marketing and incentives. They would help other companies create incentive programs like two for one or buy three and get the fourth one free. They would help other companies develop these kinds of marketing programs and advertise them. Their business was to help other companies increase their own business. One of Klein's star employees was a man named Jerry Colangelo. And that name may sound familiar because I did an entire episode on Jerry Colangelo and his impact to the NBA and the United States Olympic team. And that was episode 26 in case you want to go back and check it out. Now Dick Klein had played basketball at Northwestern University before going into business. Jerry Colangelo had played his basketball at the University of Illinois and was an all Big Ten player player. 
Klein always had a dream of owning an NBA team, and he wanted that team in his hometown of Chicago. Now, at the time, Chicago did not have a team, and it was doubtful that they ever would. You see, this was not the first time that the NBA tried to put a team in Chicago. The first time was back during the very first season of the NBA in 1946, when one of the original teams was the Chicago Stags. They played for the first four seasons of the NBA and then went out of business in 1950 due to a lack of finances. The NBA tried again in 1961 when the Chicago Packers joined the NBA. After one season, they changed their name to the Chicago Zephyrs because Chicago people did not like the name Packers because the Packers was the big rival for the Chicago Bears football team. It would be like a brand new baseball team calling itself the Boston Lakers. Fans of Boston would reject that name immediately because of the rivalry between the Celtics and the Lakers. But after just one season as the Chicago Zephyrs, the team relocated to Baltimore and called themselves the Bullets, and they are still around today and they are known as the Washington Wizards. So the point is that Chicago had failed twice to support an NBA team. So many thought that Klein was out of his mind to think that a third try would work out any better. The thinking back then was that Chicago was just not a basketball town. But with Jerry Colangelo as part of the organization, they would have somebody who knew how to do marketing and publicity. Now, starting an NBA team is not as easy as just saying you want to start an NBA team, no matter how rich you happen to be. In order to be approved to start a new team, the current group of owners has to vote in a majority to let you in. It is like that with all of the major sports leagues in the United States. The group of existing owners has to approve the expansion and the specific ownership group that wants to get in. The NBA had nine teams in the league in 1965, and they thought that having a 10th team would be great, not only to expand the league and begin playing games in a new city, but it also created a scheduling balance by having an even number of teams. So Klein was approved. He just needed to come up with the expansion fee. At the time, Klein and Colangelo estimated that the expansion fee would be $750,000, but they did not have that kind of money. So they had to find investors to jump in and become co-owners with Klein as the lead owner and the guy who would run the team on a day-to-day -day basis. It was a lot of hard work, lots of meetings, lots of begging, but they came up with the $750,000. That was a huge accomplishment. It is not easy to convince investors to hand over their money. You have to show them how they will earn a profit from the venture. Now, considering that the NBA had already failed twice in the city of Chicago, this was practically a miracle. And they did it. Unfortunately, when it came to actually deliver the funds to the NBA, the existing NBA owners surprised them by saying that the expansion fee was actually $1.25 million, and that caught Colangelo off guard. He used some not very nice words and stormed out of the room, but once he calmed down, he realized that he and Klein still wanted to be in the NBA. So with more hard work and meetings, they were able to secure the extra $500,000 and deliver the entire fee to the NBA which officially made them the 10th team in the NBA. Now, I wanna be clear about this next thing because this is important. The entry fee to join the NBA or any other major sports league is exactly what it is called. It is just an entry fee. 
all the owner gets for that money is entry to the NBA. They still have to come up with a whole separate treasure chest of money to secure offices, hire team personnel like coaches, trainers, administrative assistants, several scouts, a general manager, a ticket manager, a head coach, a sponsorship people, and even a payroll and human resources department. They also have to secure an arena, whether it is building their own arena or signing a contract with an existing building to play their home games. In today's NBA, a team has to build a training facility, charter an airplane to fly the team around, and the largest expense of all, signing between 12 and 17 players to wear the uniform and play the games. All of this takes time to organize, and it takes a whole lot of people. So where does that entry fee money go? The entry fee money is divided equally among all of the existing owners and it goes right into their pockets. It does not go into an NBA account. Now some owners, like Mark Cuban of the Mavericks, probably invested back into the team, but other owners, like James Dolan of the Knicks, probably just keeps it. In 2023, the entry fee to join the NBA would be somewhere around $1 billion, with a B. The existing owners can charge whatever they want because the NBA is their own private sandbox and they control who else gets to join them and play in it. That is part of the privilege of being an NBA owner. Now, this is a good place to take a break and I'll be right back with more of what it takes to start a new NBA team. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. At the Sports History Network, we're all about sports yesteryear, and so we're so pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings your sports history to life anywhere. The Row One Gallery includes over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, advertisements, and more in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. And any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. And in Row One Shop, check out the thousands more of unique Unique items with a retro and historical designs dating back to 1876, including t-shirts, long sleeve shirts, phone cases, mugs, blankets, pillows, towels, and even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com, R-O-W number one, for access to the full Row One catalog and for gallery prints and gift items, plus get a 15% discount off all prints on the Row One Pictorum Gallery with coupon code SHN15. Follow the link on the show notes. Hi, everybody. Dan and Andrew from Hello Old Sports here. We wanted to drop in and let you know about our latest episode. That's right. We interviewed the co-authors of Phyllis George, Shattering the Ceiling, a biography of groundbreaking broadcaster Phyllis George. And her life is really sort of a journey through 20th century America, from Miss America pageants to the Kentucky State House to the groundbreaking NFL Today show on CBS, even the Kentucky Colonels, the old ABA. We got into all sorts of stories about the Celtics under Red Auerbach, about the interview with Roger Staubach, about really all sorts of things, a fight between Brent Musburger and Jimmy the Greek. We really enjoyed talking with Lenny Shulman and Paul Volponi, who teamed up to write this book. The book is on sale right now wherever books are sold, you know, within reason. Garage sales, probably not. So go <laughs> ahead and pick up a copy today. And if you want a chance to win the book, you can go to sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways and register for a chance to win. Goodbye, old sports. 
Welcome back to the show and let us share what actually happened back in 1966 as the Chicago Bulls were getting ready to start playing games in the NBA. One of the first things that Jerry Colangelo did was secure sponsorships. Having ads around the arena is a great source of income for the team. Various companies can put their signs around the building and the Bulls get paid for that opportunity. They also have to set aside money to pay the players. Now keep in mind that the team has to secure this money before they have even earned a cent. Running an NBA team comes with a very heavy upfront investment. In 1966, the team's salary cap was $180,000 to be spent on 12 players. In 2023, the team's salary cap is just under $124 million for 17 players. The next thing that the Bulls had to do was come up with a name and start promoting the team. Now they selected Bulls because it sounded tough and there was a connection to the old Chicago stockyards where much of America's beef was processed. Next, they had to secure a playing facility. The building that made the most sense was the old Chicago Stadium where the city's hockey team, the Chicago Blackhawks, played their games. The building was owned by the Blackhawks owners who did not want to let the Bulls use their building because they did not believe that the team would stick around very long. So the Bulls secured a decrepit building called the International Amphitheater. It was located where the stockyards used to be and the entire building smelled like animals. And when it came to scouting, Jerry Colangelo himself traveled around the country scouting college games to get a handle on who they might want to draft in the summer of 1966. In their very first promotional event to generate interest for the new team, they took a live bull and put him on the back of a flatbed truck and drove around the city attracting attention and letting everyone know about the new team getting ready to tip off in the fall. They put ads in the newspapers and worked with the local sports writers convincing them to write columns about the Bulls as often as possible. They wanted the entire city of Chicago and the suburbs to get excited about this new team. One of their angles in promoting the team was to appeal to basketball fans. They would have messages and ads letting fans know that players like Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Oscar Robertson, and Jerry West would now be making regular stops in Chicago to play against the Bulls. Serious NBA fans from Chicago would no longer have to travel to Cincinnati, Detroit, or St. Louis to take in an NBA game. All of those teams would now be coming to them. In the end, it worked. Between ticket sales, TV revenue, sponsorship revenue, and merchandise sales, the Bulls took in $425,000 in total income in that first year. After paying all of their expenses, they were able to turn a very small profit, and with that, they were on their way. Finally, October of 1966 rolled around, and they played their very first regular season game in St. Louis against the Hawks. And they beat the Hawks 104-97, to and they actually won their second game too against the Warriors, and their third game against the Lakers. The core of their team was full of veterans that they had signed from other teams like Guy Rogers, Jerry Sloan, and Bob Boozer. They actually made the playoffs in their very first season, but were knocked out in the first round by the same St. Louis Hawks. However, the good news was that it appeared that giving the city of Chicago a third try to have a team might actually work out. The team was selling tickets and making money. They connected with the fans and put out a decent team that the Chicago fans could support. Personally, I give the credit to Jerry Colangelo. He was an incredible general manager and marketing man. He successfully solved the problem of how to create a successful NBA team in the city of Chicago, where others had failed. This is why, just two years later, another brand new team was getting started in Phoenix, and they wanted Colangelo to come out and run their team. So yes, Jerry Colangelo is also the guy that got the Phoenix Suns successfully started in a city that had never had a professional team before. Now, 
back to Chicago. Eventually, in 1984, after 18 seasons in the NBA, the Bulls drafted a kid from North Carolina by the name of Michael Jordan, and he changed the team's destiny, winning six championships before he retired the second time. Now, the way the teams start today is very similar to what the Bulls had to do in 1966. I mean, in 2023, the dollar amounts are astronomically larger, but the basic approach is still the same. The ownership group has to have a ton of money in their war chest, and they have to promote the team like crazy. They have to hire good people who know how to bring success in every area of the team. It is almost like trying to fill out the roster of the team. The ownership group has to put a priority on filling out the roster of the front office staff. Again, they have to think about office space, training facility, arena, a charter plane, payroll, human resources, sponsorships and advertising, ticket sales and management, marketing, community outreach, setting up a charitable foundation, fan relations, merchandising, a statistics department, scheduling the halftime entertainment, and hiring the support staff for the team like coaches, trainers, nutritionists, chefs, massage therapists, etc. A very long time ago, I had the opportunity to work in an NHL front office as a marketing intern, and after that, got to work for eight months for the league office. I was able to learn how a team is run, and how a league is run. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that it takes a small army of very talented people to make it all work. That is what an NBA owner has to deal with when starting a brand new team. It is not for the faint of heart. And as a fan, I am so glad that this league continues to be successful. This is what goes into founding and running an NBA team. So thanks for sticking around for this episode. For many fans who turn on their TV, they just see a group of players and coaches competing against another group of players and coaches. And that is the essence of what an NBA team does. But there are also around 100 to 150 people that are part of the front office staff that do a million little things in order to make each game happen. Well, that does it for today. Hopefully you enjoyed hearing about what it takes to create an NBA team from scratch. Join us next time when we share the history of the player coach. Yes, I am talking about guys who were an active NBA player and at the same time served as the team's head coach. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about this and other sports history podcasts. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I will also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories in the past. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice 
as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.